We're looking tonight at Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Starting a series on this book tonight, we'll be covering the introduction of it. So, reading tonight, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You may be seated. Let me pray for us real quick before we begin. Father, we pray that through your Spirit you would open up our eyes, uh, that we would behold wonderful things out of your law. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think that if you want to understand what's happening tonight in these first four verses of Titus, it would be helpful for you to think of it in contrast to a typical American email. So typical American emails, at least ones that I've been a part of on both ends, often have some sort of greeting at the beginning, generally a short one, uh, very, very short. So something to the extent of, this one came to mind, uh, hope this finds you well. Simple statement at the very beginning. That one came to mind because at some point over the past week or two, I don't know exactly when, um, I stumbled across, there, there's like a subsection of the internet that reacts really strongly to, to this phrase, uh, really strongly. Uh, no idea. I, I always just read it, went right past it. Uh, but what all these people do, they, they take the phrase, hope this finds you well, um, and then at the, at the bottom of it, what they do is they write the phrase, how it actually finds me. Um, and the middle is a, ca- is a picture always of just like the opposite of doing well. So like so maybe like extremely stressed um, or in an era of work for home. So the top, hope this finds you well, bottom, how it actually finds me. Somebody like clearly just waking up in the morning, like they're, they're just checking their email, beginning coffee, totally disheveled. Things like that. It's, it's, a mindless, it's a mindless thing. I find it to be funny in part. I mean, it's clever. Um, it's funny in part because people are like actually importing meaning into words that are just a stock phrase. Like often these, this would be something on LinkedIn. You don't know the person at all. You're just reaching out to them. You're supposed to say something before I say what I want to say. Um, this, I, I bring that up to say this, this introduction is actually, other than the book of Romans, this is the most detailed introduction that Paul has of any of his letters. So, so there are some elements in here that Paul does repeat, uh, but as an introduction as a whole, this would be the opposite of what that is. It is thoughtful, it's detailed, Paul's just a thoughtful person overall. But um, actually, before we jump into the introduction itself, we should actually probably take a step back and think of the book of Titus as a whole. So, so we're starting a series on the book of Titus for this spring, and I'm actually going to steal, um, I hope this is okay, I didn't ask Dr. Moody beforehand, I'm just going to steal the introduction that he gave last week, uh, which is an acronym for the pastoral epistles. So the pastoral epistles would be 1 Timothy, 
2 Timothy, Titus, it's Paul writing to younger ministers in the faith. So they're starting out, they're, they're taking up the next generation of gospel ministry. And what Paul's doing is he's, he's laying out uh, some letters to them that are just centered on the gospel itself, but in kind of four ways. So the acronym is C-G-I-S. So Paul is calling them to commend the gospel, verbally proclaim it, and then live lives that don't make it look bad in the community as a whole. He's calling them to guard the gospel. So, so false teachers are coming in, they're coming into churches, and he is calling Timothy, he's calling Titus, call out false teaching. Call it out and teach sound doctrine. Guard the gospel. This is what you're supposed to do. Um, imitate the gospel. Live lives that are in harmony with, that are in accord with the gospel itself. Uh, and then S, suffer for the gospel. The, the, the call of the gospel at times will involve suffering. Suffer for the gospel. C-G-I-S. That's how you could think of the pastoral epistles. All three letters include all four aspects. Each one has a particular emphasis. Titus is going to emphasize over and over and over, live lives that imitate the gospel. So if you're just thinking of the series as a whole, uh, if you're thinking of the book of Titus uh, as a whole, when you're coming to it, live lives that imitate uh, the gospel in that way. Um, the, the setting of the book as well, just before we, we jump into the text itself, uh, the setting of the book is written to Titus on the island of Crete. Uh, Paul has planted some churches. They're new, they're immature uh, churches, and Paul has now sent Titus, or he's told him to remain in Crete uh, to to set some things in in order because false teachers are coming in. They're starting to teach a false gospel to these people that's leading them to lives of ungodliness um, in that way. So so Paul is writing this letter to them to call them to live lives that imitate uh, the gospel in that way. Um, if you think of the outline of it, it what we're going to do tonight, we're going to look at it in, in three movements. What you could do is you could look at the first word in verse 1, and it says, Paul, servant of God. And then you could jump down to verse 4 and just see, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, and then grace and peace. So, so there is an aspect you could kind of look at it for those three things. It's, it's just who's writing, who he's writing to, and then a commendation in that way. Um, and since most of it is kind of coming under Paul, like the, the long paragraph, if you're looking at it, is just describing who Paul is. You could, and rightly so, think about it in light of aspects of Paul's ministry, like what Paul is going after. But the more I studied it this week, the more I realized what Paul is going after, what Christ sent him out to do, is to minister to people. And Paul both knows the gospel really well, and he knows people really well. So really what he's doing in that first paragraph is he's laying out the fundamentals of the Christian life. Uh, it's not a comprehensive fundamentals. There are things in here like love uh, that, that, he doesn't, that he doesn't touch, but he is doing what coaches, what parents, what leaders of any sort do is just at certain times, I'm just going to go back to the fundamentals. I'm just going to lay out who I am, what we're all about here. So, so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. So first movement is just going to be the fundamentals of the Christian life. Just fair warning, this will be the vast majority of what we're covering. So, so when I get to the end of it, no, I did not take the, the 
the comment by Dr. Moody this morning, literally, that a proper sermon should be an hour and a half. It won't, it won't be that. It, uh, it'll, that's the vast majority of what Paul's doing, so that's the vast majority of what we're going to do here. Before he moves on to uh, the foundations of hope and then the freedom of the gospel. So the fundamentals of the Christian life, the foundations of hope, and then the freedom of the gospel. So, uh, so let's start looking in verse, in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Jesus has sent Paul out. Uh, That's what apostle means, a sent one. He sent him out with a mission, a task to complete in the world. Even even how Paul introduces himself shows that his core identity, who he is, is just defined by this mission, a servant of God an apostle of Jesus Christ. And, and for what? There's three things that he mentions that are fundamentals here. The first one is there in verse 1. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. So, so Paul is focused on faith in his apostolic ministry, and I think he's focused on faith in part because he knows that he's not the only one who's focused on faith. The devil is focused on faith. If you look at the New Testament, all over, it, it's very clear that Satan is focused on the believer's faith. And I was learning this this week, and it was, it was popping out. So in 2 Corinthians, we see what Satan is doing just as a whole in the world at large. And what's he doing? He is blinding the minds of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4, he's blinding the minds of unbelievers so that they don't believe, so that they don't see the glory of God in Jesus Christ, in the gospel. He is blinding. He is fighting faith from even being planted. He doesn't want the seed of faith planted in anybody's life. Then what he's doing from there, uh, for anybody who is professing to be a Christian, so I would assume probably most of us in here tonight, professing to be Christians, professing to be followers of Jesus Christ, he is to use the analogy of the seed that Jesus does of the sower went out to sow. You know, he, I threw some, 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 uh, some seeds on, on the ground, the, the birds took them. And that's what Satan's doing out in the world. But for those who are professing faith, it's coming in, it, it, it's starting to grow. Satan is just fighting that. He wants to kill that faith. And there's two, two primary ways that he's doing. Uh, the first one is temptation. So Hebrews 3, just really clear on this. Uh, we are to exhort one another every day. Why? Uh, so that our hearts aren't hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, so that we fall away from Christ. And the reason this stuck out to me this week is, I don't know about you, but I can often see temptations just kind of in a, in a small frame in and of itself. So I see the temptation, I know that I'm not supposed to do it, and that's about what it is. What, what Hebrews 3 does is it kind of sets that temptation in the midst of a whole life of attack by Satan on our faith. So Satan doesn't just tempt you because he knows that God doesn't want you to sin. He tempts you so that he will over time harden your heart so that you fall away from the living God. Satan himself is just obsessed with the faith of people who profess to be Christians. He does this also with trials. Um, 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul is writing to a church that's going through trials. And in it, 
he's actually writing and he's talking. He's saying to them, hey, I wanted to check in on your faith so that my labor wouldn't be in vain on all of you. So what that's assuming is that there are trials that are coming in that are attacking people's faith. And just in the midst of all of this, uh, Paul sees it clearly. And, and, and so for us today, we should see this clearly uh, in our life, that our life is defined by the initial faith and by the growth or death of faith in our life from, from profession until the end of our, till the end of our lives. Um, and, and even in this book itself, if you look at verse 113, uh, what Satan has done specifically in Crete is he's not doing this directly. He's not uh, sending trials or temptations directly himself. What seems to be happening is he's sending ministers, people who are teaching a false gospel leading to ungodliness. Um, and in that, verse 13, to uh, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. There, there's almost an implication if, if Titus, if you don't take care of this, people, their faith isn't going to be sound. It's going to be rattled. It's going to be shaken by the devil in that way. Um, so, so I actually just want to take a minute, a couple minutes, and define what faith is. I mean, if it's this central to Paul, if it's this central to Satan, what, what is it? And you, you could say, you'd be right, uh, that faith is believing the promises of God. Totally true and sufficient in, in some ways. But um, I think the analogy of God giving us four pictures of who Jesus is in the Gospels. Like, so Jesus comes, he gives us Matthew, he gives us Mark and Luke and John, and they're all kind of like calling out different things about who he is. Sometimes he does that with doctrines as well. So, so you could say faith, believing, God's promises, but sometimes the Bible will actually turn it and just kind of give you another image of, of what it is. And I heard one of these recently from a pastor named uh, Andrew Davis. Um, I just want to give you the definition and lay out some of the verses that he, that he uses there. I found it to be really helpful. Um, faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible realities. So, so faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible realities, past, present, and future. So, so here, here's, what, here's what that means. Hebrews 11, 24 to 27. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That chapter, the hall of faith, ends in 12.2 with a call to all of us, the readers of this book, calling us to do something. What? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. How do you look to Jesus who's in heaven, invisible, by faith, hearing these words and then seeing him, making it real to you? Um, one more example, Ephesians 1.18. What is Paul's prayer 
for the, for the churches. And, and f- so for us today, what would be our prayer for ourselves, having seen that Paul cares about faith, what's my prayer for me tomorrow morning, what's my prayer for you tomorrow morning, as, as we're just thinking about ourselves and other people um, that we're running this, this race with, would be this. Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart are enlightened, the, the eyesight of the soul. I pray that the eyes of your heart are enlightened to know the hope to which God's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So, so this aspect of faith, uh, we are just seeing through hearing God's word, we're seeing the realities of God, and they're becoming real. They're becoming tangible and palpable. We could pray for this in our own lives. We could focus on it with others. So that's the first fundamental of the Christian life. The second one is also in verse 1. If you, if you take a look at it, it's the second half of the verse. So he's gone out for the, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So it's kind of a compound, a knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. First half of that one, knowledge of the truth. For Paul, this means an understanding of the message of the gospel and an understanding of the implications of the gospel as they affect all of life. So so it's an initial understanding of the truth of the gospel and an understanding of the implications as it goes on. Um, and then the second half, it's, it's, it's not phrased in a way that I, it's not a phrase that I use every day. A knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. So, so what, is, what does that mean uh, exactly? It, great, it's a great translation of it. I think that you could also paraphrase, paraphrase it to say it's in harmony with, it's in agreement with. Uh, and so I think Paul's understanding, what, why would he say there's a knowledge of the truth that is in harmony with, that accords with the gospel. I think it's this. So the message of the gospel is what? Uh, That we are united to Christ in his death. So when when he died, we died with him to sin, to death, to the tyranny of death. When he was raised, we were raised to walk in newness of life. We are raised by him. We have been purchased by him for newness of life. Now, which life agrees with that? A life that fights sin or a life that constantly indulges sin? So I've, I've died to sin with Christ and then I've been raised to walk in newness of life. Which agrees with that? I constantly fight sin or I just constantly give into it? Well, I don't know which one I said first. It's the one that fights, I think, the first one. Yeah, I, I, you fight fighting sin. Fighting sin is the thing that is in agreement, in accord with the understanding of the truth of the message itself. So being a, a major theme in the book, we're going to be able to get back to this a number of times. We're going to be able to uh, understand more and more of the implications of that. I want to leave, I just want to state one of them. Uh, any preaching of the gospel that leads towards a diminishment of a life of obedience that kind of makes it seem unimportant, even kind of anti-gospel calls to obedience, would just not be Paul's gospel in this way. Paul's gospel is in agreement with a life of godliness, even a call to godliness. So to kind of paraphrase the famous phrase, uh, grace, the gospel of grace, is not opposed to effort 
or calls to godliness. It's not opposed to that. Grace is opposed to an attitude of earning, of by obedience, I'm somehow earning God's favor in that way. That is opposite of what grace is, but it is not itself in any way. It's, it's actually in accord with, it's in harmony with godliness. So that's the, that's the second fundamental of the Christian life that Paul goes over in that way. Faith, uh, knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. And the third one is going to be hope. Um, you can look at verse 2. This is Paul's ministry. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So, so Paul's ministry is done in hope. It, it's done to create hope um, in, in people. And I was actually... Um, I was actually joking with the college students. I was, I was downstairs about 20 minutes before this started. I was reading over this, and I realized that what I wrote um, was that I think we all understand what, what it means to live in hope because there is a lightness to kind of the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So, we, so we're early January. We've just kind of come out, out of the holiday season. And, and, and for a lot of people, there is kind of a lightness. There's a brevity. There's a joy to all of the time between Thanksgiving and and Christmas, because Christmas itself is so bright and light that there, there's something about it that just kind of casts, not a shadow, but it casts its light on all the days leading up to it in December. It's, it's the holiday season. It's going, I apologize to them, because as people who have to endure finals, it's like literally the opposite of the latest time of the year. It's probably the heaviest uh, time of the year for them. Uh, but but the, I think the illustration for most people uh, still stands, and you'll get there uh, at some point. It is, there is a sense in which it's the lightest time of life because there's something we're looking ahead to that is just casting uh, its light back and just changing the way we live. And it, for Christians, eternity should do this to us. Eternity, what we are going to experience with Christ, should be so bright in our minds that it is just causing us to reframe and rethink everything in our life. And I think it should why? Why? Because, Christian, in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no more sickness or pain or grief or tears. There will be no more weariness or fatigue in your work. I know for sure there are people in our congregation who would say, every day I go to bed exhausted because of my path of life, and I wake up not refreshed at all. Like, the, the life I've been given is just heavy. None of that anymore. Completely wiped away. You will be given a resurrection body that shines like the sun. Even more importantly, the the sin that's inside of you, that you have to fight every single day, completely gone. Every single inclination you have, you will be able to pursue with full energy and full zeal. The earth that you'll live on, as beautiful as it is after snow, as beautiful as it is in national parks, is described as going through birth pains. It is groaning. It will be freed for a glory that is far beyond anything that you could imagine right now. Best of all, God himself will be there. Isaiah has one of the best promises in the Bible that you will see the king in his beauty on his throne. You will feast with Christ. And I think one of the best promises, while it is happening, you will be able to do something 
there that you cannot do for anything on earth, which is you will know that while this is happening, you are no closer to the end of this good experience than you were when you started. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It is, it is a book, a story, a novel, to steal the, the phrase. It's a novel that will only get better and better and better. And, and what Paul is doing, what he ministered out of, is that hope. And when you see that world, this world never quite looks the same. And by God's grace, it never feels quite the same. It makes trials that feel unbearably long, feel light and momentary in light of what's coming. And the fact that you, every single person you meet will live forever can fundamentally change the way that you look at people and how you interact with them and what goals you have for your interactions with them. So, so may God cause us to, to number our days, like the psalmist says, so that we gain a heart of wisdom. And then may he give us the grace to see the never-ending day that we will inherit so that we gain a heart of hope there. So those are the, those are the three fundamentals of the Christian life that Paul was aiming at, that we should aim at in our own lives, in the lives of other people that we're working with, that we're living with, uh, and that we're helping along in the Christian life in that way. But before, before we end, we, sh- we should notice, he, Paul does a couple more things. He looks, he, he lays out the foundations of our hope. That would be the end of verse 2 and verse 3. Uh, why can we hope, why can we live in a hope of eternal life? Verse 2, because God, who never lies, promised this before the ages began. And at the proper time, he manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God. So he lays out there in those verses two foundations of hope. Number one is the fact that God doesn't lie. So, so this, this word that you hold uh, in your hands, that you can read every day, that you, that you come here, that you hear preaching from, can be a life, uh, you can build your life on this. Not one word of it will ever be untrue. Not one decision that you ever make that's based on the truth of this, you, not one of those decisions will ever be looked at as a decision that I, oh, I kind of regret that one at all. You could build your life on this. It is stable. It is solid. God does not lie. Entirely truthful. This word is unbreakable in and of itself. It is a foundation of the Christian life. The second one there, it's a little bit, it's implied, but it's in there as well. The other foundation actually points us to the words of this book as well, because what it says is this hope we've been given was promised by God before the ages began, but then how did it come into this world? How was it, the phrase probably, or the word that you would look for there is manifested. How was it manifested into this world. Well, it was manifested through the apostolic preaching of the gospel. And what that means is that the gospel that's recorded here in Titus, the gospel that's recorded uh, in the gospels, the, throughout the entire Bible, 
just trace there is the message itself that, that we can bank our lives on. And I think the clear implication of that is that this is a book that we should give ourselves to. And it's a book that if this is the foundation of hope, this is a book that we should just be active with knowing and talking about with others. It is a book that we should be really active on just reading with non-Christians. The, what is recorded here is an eternal truth uh, of God that was manifested, preached, and recorded in these words in that way. So then finally, what, what, is, what is the result? What is the freedom that the gospel gives? We, we looked at the fundamentals of the Christian life the foundation of hope, and then finally, the freedom of the gospel. So, so he's writing to Timothy, his true child, in a common faith. I think that actually highlights what's about to happen, which is the freedom of the gospel, which is grace and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The interesting thing in this world, they weren't divided over politics or other uh, exactly the same we exactly the same way that we are uh, in America today. That one of the fundamental d- divides of, of that world was Jew-Gentile. So Paul, a Jew, is writing to Titus, a Gentile. And what's united them? A, a true child in a common faith. So, so this is a message for absolutely everyone. And what is the message? It is a message of grace and peace. There are millions of people in this world uh, who are living a life that is fearful of death. Millions of them. There is something that would gnaw at them, that when, when the room gets silent late at night, there's just something that's gnawing at me. I'm just not totally okay with that. Uh, why? Well, there there's, might not be something right with a, with a higher power. What, what's there? So what do they do? I'm just going to try to live a life where I just try to earn this person's favor in that way. And, and this phrase, grace and peace, which is how Paul starts every letter just about, uh, is, just turns that on its head completely. I, I, think, I think the reason why he puts it here is not just because it's his stock phrase. This is not Paul's, hope you're doing well. I think the reason why he, he puts this here is it's just, it turns the mortal, sinful human mindset on its, just totally on its head. So I am fearful of God and I'm going to try to earn his favor. It's the exact opposite of that grace and peace completely right completely reconciled with this god why because of grace because god sent christ reconciling the world to himself in that way so go out in the grace and peace of god our father and the lord jesus christ this is the freedom this is what we feel this is the message that we give so let let me pray uh, before we close with the song Father, I pray that the, the grace and peace that you've given to us in the gospel would awaken our hearts, that we would have a heart of hope. Father, I pray that this week we would have um, eyes of faith that are just brighter than they ever were. Father, we pray that we would understand and see with those eyes of faith the, your truth as stated in the scriptures, that it would lead us to a life of godliness and joy and hope. Father, I pray that even this year that you would cause us through the power of your spirit to have some people in our community look at, look at members of College Church 
and ask us what causes you to be so hopeful. And I pray, Father, that through that they would come to know the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. In your name, amen.